Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide. From Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond. Here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Welcome back to the Global Startup Movement. I'm your host, Andrew Berkowitz. Today, we're kind of mixing it up. I definitely want to start doing more insight-driven content on the podcast. And uh, really, at this whole content platform, I want to really focus on providing insights into emerging market ecosystems that you can't find anywhere else. And so today's episode, we're going to be doing a top five episode mix of five episodes from the African ecosystem But as we build this content library, I'm going to be taking this approach region by region and really want to compile an exhaustive content library and an exhaustive list of insights of building startups all around the world. So this is the first of many. I hope you enjoy it. We'll start off with number five. At number five is our episode with Dr. Konstantinos, who is the Chief Innovation and Data Officer at Wema Bank, which is Nigeria's oldest bank but one that has been very forward-thinking in its recent years. About halfway into the conversation, we started to talk about why Nigerian banks don't offer more loans to individuals and SMEs, and his answer really reflects the issue with the old brick-and-mortar banking model on the continent, and also shows why uh, we talk so much about fintech when it comes to Africa. Traditionally, the large banks find quite unprofitable to have their unbanked clients because they are on remote areas and they need a lot of help and guidance. So there is operation, there is physical costs, operation costs, and also staff costs, right? But if you can onboard them uh, through remote agents and use your app, this uh, makes a change. So again, the reason is because the large, the, all the banks found much more profitable to give corporate loans and loans to high net worth individuals and ignore right. the rest of the market. Right now, what are the biggest lending sectors in, in, in the country? Always corporate lending to large corporates with very high rates. And then some high net worth individuals and the upper middle class. But is that changing? Because I, I just feel like, you know, there's, there would have to be a lot of potential with agribusiness and smaller SMEs. And that would unlock a lot of liquidity in the, in the economy. So you are right. There is a clear, I mean, there is a huge opportunity in SME lending. And as a result... There are startups focusing on different ways of SME financing. This can be supply chain finance or simple loans or even P2P and so on. So uh, this area is attracting a lot of interest across whole Africa. And uh, yes, SME lending is a huge opportunity. But again, you have to understand SMEs are... We speak about a country where perhaps the 80% of the SMEs does not even have a formal license. It's an informal SME, right? So they are without any formal credit history. So we speak about totally different uh, nature of SMEs. Yeah. At number four is my conversation with Zacharias Amsalou from Ibex Frontier, who connects investors with early and later stage opportunities in Ethiopia. One of the interesting things that I've learned about what African economies need the most to go from frontier to emerging to emerged is not necessarily more venture capital, but more investment into infrastructure, energy, and a lot of the more traditional sectors that we really take for granted nowadays in the West. 
This tidbit from Zacharias dives into where foreign direct investment in Ethiopia is going to and is a really good reflection of what kind of investment capital is really needed across the African continent as Ethiopia is one of the best performing countries on the continent over the past 10 years. If you look at 2017 as an example, we issued our report on the FDI, MNA and exit deals of Ethiopia. And Ethiopia has attracted $7.4 billion investment last year, all FDI. The biggest chunk is renewable energy, and that is actually the single largest investment in Africa for the year. That is a $4 billion renewable energy as a consortium of U.S. and Icelandic company. So renewable energy was the largest last year, and it will continue to be the same for the foreseeable future because um, you have a very attractive PPP initiative by the government. There is a lot of last mile unconnected population that needs energy access. The government is working on that. And there's also a big movement on renewable energy globally. We expect that. Uh, the second largest investment last year was um, uh, textile and also mining, uh, second and third, sorry. So the second was mining, $1.4 billion, followed by textile and apparel, uh, almost $1 billion. Uh, so textile and apparel will continue to be uh, a huge uh, investment uh, sector for Ethiopia uh, with the uh, focus of um, industrial parks that the Ethiopian government is building across the country. So investors have um, one of um, the cheapest, uh, if not the cheapest electricity on the planet, affordable um, uh, salary for a working population, trainable workforce and uh, tax incentives. All that is actually helping international uh, apparel companies moving their plants to Ethiopia. And uh, FMCG will continue to be also a major investment area. Last year, we had uh, half a billion dollar investment, followed by hotel and um, international uh, resort, which was which attracted almost $347 million. So those are the major sectors and uh, will continue to be um, uh, the same this year. We expect renewable energy, FMCG, mining, and infrastructure uh, to be the main FDI attracting sectors in Ethiopia. And number three, we have Johnny Kelsgaard, who is the founder and CEO at Growth Africa. At Growth Africa, Johnny and his team focus on growing successful enterprises and entrepreneurs in Africa through acceleration, strategic advice, and access to investment. He makes an argument that really took me about a year and a half to fully realize was the case in Africa. And it started to shed some light into why using venture capital funds available as a metric to uh, gauge an overall health of an ecosystem is really more of a vanity metric than we're led on to believe. Uh, here are Johnny's thoughts on how we can better look at ways to judge the overall health and growth in Africa's startup ecosystems. Our observation is, in, and especially in, in a country like Kenya, there is a, a lot more capital than there are good entrepreneurs and, and, and good startups. Um, so, so access or the availability of money is not actually the issue. It, it is when you ask the entrepreneur because they can't access it because they're not quite investment ready, uh, seen in the eyes of, of the investors. And some of the skills that they're lacking in the eyes of the investors is 
oftentimes it's it's basic analytical skills. It is the ability to understand and perceive your organization, its interdependencies, as well as its interaction with the external environment. Being able to, in a very structured way, analyze this in a continuous way, make decisions based on information and data rather than on on far-flung assumptions, and be able to do that on an ongoing basis, make those changes, refinements, pivots to all parts of your organization, not just the product. A lot of entrepreneurs, especially in, in the IT scene, but, but pretty much across all the sectors that we operate with, are very product-focused. And even in, in the product focus, they're very, they're very widget-focused. Uh, they're not necessarily focused on, on what is the underlying problem that I am trying to solve for my customer. So just having the ability to kind of go three or four layers deeper than what is, what is on the surface, both in terms of what your customer needs, but also what the, the underlying problem, shortcoming, gap, challenge is in various parts of your business. Having, having that ability to dissect that in a, a structured way is really kind of the key skill that we see are lacking. Think about that. It is also coming up with solutions is pretty much at par as far as we've seen with, with entrepreneurs across the rest of the world. But then the discipline around implementation of these uh, solutions and the leadership around that is, is often something that's also lacking. So having that structure to, to how you actually go about implementing the plans, implementing strategies, capturing data in that process, using that data afterwards to to kind of refine what it is that you're doing and improve upon upon that is kind of what we also uh, see a missing and of course you you do have that that happens across all entrepreneurial ecosystems uh, also outside of africa but we do see that more pronounced here in my opinion at number two we have osaruman osamoyi who has become my favorite blogger in the african tech ecosystem and about, I guess, a year and a half ago now, he wrote an amazing article about a company called Minds.io, who this past year closed a $13 million Series A round. They're a Nigerian-based startup. They help banks lend out digital credit to consumers. And they took such an interesting approach to building their company that's very counterintuitive to the typical dogma that we hear in the startup ecosystem. Take a listen to how Minds.io was able to build their company. And one good example of this is Minds. What I find interesting about the company is that as opposed to trying to compete directly or, or circumvent the traditional players, they are building tools to empower them. And so in the same ways that you find a company like Payletter, or they're not called Carbon, delivering loans, uh, but they started out by delivering loans to consumers via an Android app. That's the kind of thing that is basically circumventing a traditional financial institution. And it's easy to see how they can rebuild the banking bundle uh, at the end of that process, by when they own the consumer relationship. Um, so, you know, after giving loans as they have done, they then open up savings and investments. They then um, have a payment wallet from which um, users can, uh, through which users can make payments for their bills and send money to other people, etc. You know, and basically not have to ever interact with a bank. And it's very easy to see them, you know, getting a banking license. I think, I think they already have one now, I'm not sure. Getting a banking license and basically cutting off the consumers of the future, the most valuable consumers from the traditional financial institutions today. But a company like Minds is taking these same tools as opposed to going direct to consumer, which one might argue uh, might be expensive and, and really difficult in this market. 
they are partnering with corporates, say, starting with banks, but also telcos to say you have all this data about these consumers. You know, you have all the distribution mechanisms put in place. Let us deliver innovation to you on a platter and basically monitor the entire process, your transition from an analog world into a digital one. Um, and in exchange for that, we'll probably, you know, do a revenue share or probably have some interesting commercials uh, um, in the back end. Um, I find that very interesting because it goes counter to the traditional startup narrative, you know, of telling corporates that they should either innovate or die. Uh, in this case, it then comes to innovate or partner with Minds or die, um, or company like, comp- companies like Minds. Um, and so I found that very interesting. Uh, and I'm hoping to see many more companies think in those terms because as opposed to trying to get expe- the, the, the thesis of the internet, you know, which is that you may not need to invest in all these physical structures to get access to consumers. So if you look at things like e-commerce, for example, if you wanted to sell things, say, 20 years ago in Nigeria, you needed, you needed to have raised a bunch of money and then go invest in actual real estate. The thing you want to do is sell, say, shoes, um, but you're going to have to invest in real estate, invest in all these structures which the internet promises to cut out. But we're not seeing that promise playing out in reality. What we're seeing is that the cost to acquire consumers for e-commerce companies, for example, is still very high online. And there's not that many consumers even using the internet anyways, even though they have access to it um, for multiple reasons we could get into. And so partnering with the established companies that already have access to these consumers, that already have um, deep relationships with them, that have some data that you might use to inform you know, some of the decisions you take internally is interesting to me. Um, and I'm hoping I see more companies like mine moving forward. Finally, at number one is our episode with Ighosa Amoigoy, who is the founder and managing partner at EcoVC. One thing that frustrates a lot of private equity and later stage venture capital who really want to write more checks in Africa, but they just don't see the scale-ups that the startup ecosystem should be producing. Now, is it a case that private equity firms are leading these African companies down the wrong path? Maybe. During my conversation with Ighosa, who really is one of the godfathers of venture capital on the continent, so he raised his EcoVC fund after a stint at Intel Capital and was one of the first really Silicon Valley-esque funds during this way, this last startup wave uh, that was investing in the continent. But he talked here about why there aren't more scale-ups in Africa. I think you can sort of start and stop at market fragmentation and that's it. But I do think that in terms of scale, uh, many entrepreneurs, and I think a lot of the larger investors that tend to disproportionately be private equity folks, lead these entrepreneurs down the wrong path. And here's, here's my thinking. You know, for whatever reason, a lot of the private equity folks, for instance, are of the view that if you're able to sort of prove out a Pan-African platform, they can eventually sell you to some large offshore entity, you know. But as you can sort of you know, and you know, of course, they sort of use India as, a, as an example because you see what Walmart just did, you know, but you have a billion people, which is, you know, probably, you know, 20% larger than, than the whole of Africa. So everybody's sort of looking to position these companies as Pan-African platforms. Uh, but, but, you know, our view is that that's not necessarily something we, we, we sign up for. And the reason why is that there's some of these markets that are very interesting as singular markets, right? the big example you know we use is Nigeria. You know, Nigeria is you know 180, 190 million people. One in six, approximately one in six blacks worldwide is Nigerian, and it's 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 a market that is completely full of microeconomies. 
Uh, we call them internally iceberg microeconomies because 99% of those microeconomies are below the surface. But that's the opportunity. And so when you are best able to sort of have a very high fidelity view and appreciation of these microeconomies, and then you're sort of able to sort of rethink really how to go serve them, then the whole concept of trying to go across borders is not as relevant. Now, for some companies, absolutely, they will go across borders because their businesses scale in a very natural and linear way. Uh, but for a lot of companies, you know, our view is they can sort of sit in, in one or two of these markets. Uh, maybe they have physical adjacency, maybe not. Maybe they have, you know, very specific positive correlations. But then, you know, just, just focus on those. And, you know, and, and, I, and I think trying to build companies that can do a couple of things really well. Get, you know, they can certainly hire and drive high quality jobs. They can drive significant revenues and it can be incredibly profitable. It's a hard enough thing to do in Africa without now thinking about how we're just going to go and serve 10 or 12 or 14 countries across the continent. And a lot of them are very different. You then see even groupings. You know, so West Africa is an interesting grouping, but even then it's, 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 it's not exactly um, linear. Uh, East Africa is an interesting grouping. Even Southern Africa, which is a grouping outside of South Africa, could potentially be interesting. Smaller populations, but then again, you can also do quite well with them. And so when I find out, you step back and you say, okay, how many really successful companies at Pan-Africa? Isn't they up to 20? And that makes sense. And this market fragmentation is also a huge problem in Europe and Southeast Asia as well, but it's a little bit more pronounced and a little bit more challenging in Africa. So there you have it. Those are, in my opinion, the top five episodes on the African continent that we've done. Uh, I hope you like that format. I really want to start incorporating a lot more insight-driven content into the platform. Uh, so if you liked it, let me know. If you didn't like it, let me know as well. Uh, but that's all for today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at andberk, that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.